sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast on a dank and dark December day in Franklin, Tennessee. And I'm being, Aaron is motioning for me to come closer to the mic. Is that what it's about? That's what it's about. You you want me to come closer to the mic and not necessarily closer to you? Yeah, we got a table between us. Okay. (laughs) I'm feeling feeling protective today. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not used to seeing you garbed up in, I mean, uh, Mr. California guy. <laughs> M- moves to moves to Mr. Tennessee. California guy moves to Tennessee and does not adapt. Uh, you know the wardrobe. You still walk around most of the time in t-shirts, shorts, and freaking flip flops. Let me see. You're well, barefooted here. Well, the it flip is... flops are by the door because they're drying. <laughs> uh, how how is this a negative thing? It was so lovely today, and rainy, and so I was able to like navigate the the torrents of water going down the street without worrying about my socks getting wet. I hate wet socks. Flip-flops are the answer. All right. I am wearing the waterproof boots that I purchased for last (laughs) year's walk through Ireland. Ah, how are they working? Quite well, thank you. You're welcome. My my, my (laughs) socks are dry. Oh, I don't have any of those. I've got $15 Amazon Converse ripoffs, and the bottoms of the soles are no longer waterproof. The sides never were. Yeah. So, no, flip-flops are good. It's All right. It's all good. Okay. I'm, I'm feeling good. Well, uh, you would have been, your, your attire would have been oh, wait. perfectly appropriate. Well, you tell are. Me, tell me this is not. Ah, you have the McCreary's T-shirt on. Found it at the thrift store up the road, Goodwill in Franklin favorite thrift store okay and did you also get that zip up hoodie at the thrift store uh back in california yes oh i see all right okay so anyways you were saying before i realized i was totally sporting tennessee yeah well i was going to say you would have been uh, perfectly attired had you been with Allie and me last week in amelia island florida I knew this sweatshirt looked like an old man's sweatshirt. <laughs> oh. oh is that, that's not what you meant? No, I did not mean that. Oh, either. okay. That was a retirement comment. I meant, I meant, you know, warm breeze and sunshine. So it was good? It was. It was. Allie and I checked out from the daily routine for a week, went and stayed with our youngest son, his wife, and our two youngest grandkids in Amelia Island, Florida. And, uh... And just had a week being grandparents and hanging out. It was wonderful. And I'm all ready to, to, to get back here and head back into the hurry and flurry of Samson life. Now, you enjoy your grandkids a great deal. I do. I'm a far it's... better grandfather than I was a father. I feel, you know, I was an active addict when my kids were growing up. And I missed a lot of those wonderful years. Or I was kind of like half present. Mm-hmm. The ability to actually now... First of all, to recapture the ability to play. The thing about active addiction is that it dials back um, uh, the pleasure response to the point where you just, I mean, you don't get pleasure out, you don't get pleasure out of using anymore. You use to stay, to, you know, to get to normal. Right. Uh, 
And, you know, and life's small pleasures elude you when you're an active addict. So the word present gets thrown around yeah. a lot, whether it's spiritual formation stuff, addiction or at recovery. Christmas time, present or, is really big. <laughs> or, or in the Kringle world. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder, I, I feel like all of us feel like we know what that means. Mm-hmm. But when you say, ah, oh, during active addiction, I was only half present. Yeah. What did that mean? What did it feel like? And what did it feel like to emerge from the that shadow? Yeah, you know, I think that, uh, you know, addicts adapt. And I, I don't think that I was, I know that I was not aware of how shallow my life had become. Um. You know, my addiction is rooted very much in an attachment style, an attachment disorder. Uh, so, you know, I think in terms of attachment theory, you'd put me in the category of insecure avoidant. So I'm not somebody who instinctively, uh, when I'm in my wounded state especially, I'm going to press toward close emotional attachment. So that what did that look like at home that you would just – kind of be in working while other people were doing things and you weren't engaging? Yeah, I was kind of, I was kind of half engaged. Uh, a lot of the time, if I wasn't acting out and wasn't thinking about acting out and planning for acting out or, or mm-hmm. indulging in some euphoric recall from another episode, um, I was very often fantasizing about some other accomplishment. So working on some grandiose scheme to do something huge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I loved my kids and uh, to, to the limits of my ability. Um, but yeah, to be present without being terribly emotionally attuned. Um, and children play. Play is the work of children. That's what they're to do. And uh, I had almost lost, you know, I'd lost a lot of my ability to play. Uh, if it involved imagination, if it was just strip competition, I could get into that. So as the, my son got older and we could play some frisbee mm-hmm. golf or do something like that, that competitive play I could do, but just imaginative play. Right. You had to be achieving something, filling those identity holes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You know, my kids will you know, protest. They have, they still have, thank God, some sweet and wonderful memories from childhood. And, uh, you know, they, my, the damage that I inflicted on my kids was more in the category of neglect, certainly than abuse. Mm -hmm. Having been myself a subject of uh, emotional and physical abuse, I'm very sensitive to that, would never have done that to my kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and Allie did a very good job, always kind of doing her very best to paper over my deficiencies, uh, even to the detriment of her own, uh, you know, reputation in the family. Right. But uh, you know, so the kids, kids still. I mean, they're they don't they don't carry a ton of resentment about their childhood. I think that I'm probably more consciously aware of. Um, you know, the damage they suffered maybe than they are. I don't know. My daughter's done a lot of therapy work and we had some deep conversations last year. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, uh, I think it's such a hopeful thing 
when we realize, uh, I know I've come to different times and reasons that I've realized I'm not present, mm-hmm. like I'm hiding, I'm checking out. Yeah. Um, and I usually have to kind of physically do it, whether mm-hmm. it's with work or, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I can't do the halfway thing that yeah. you were able to achieve. Um, but that's always that that sign. And when I'm in that place, it's so hard to remember what it even feels like to be present, to yeah. be in the moment, yeah. and to enjoy. And I think that's such a big part of being present, to actually enjoy those little moments, to be able to sit still. You know, I'm uh, more and more aware of the fact, you know, our, you know, our addictions you know, grow from early injuries in childhood, right? Mm. Uh, I'm quite convinced of that um, in infancy and childhood. And if you're not raised in a family that is closely emotionally attuned, uh, if you're not raised in a family where somebody wants to hear your feelings or your dreams or your ideas, um, somebody whose focus is on something other than your behavior or, uh, yeah, well, then you don't have the the raw materials to work with Mm -hmm. to uh, do that kind of emotional work unless later on during a process of reparenting, which is a lot of what recovery is, uh, you can acquire the skills of emotional attunement, emotional connection. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's that part with the early, like bringing it all back together. Yeah. And then some of it really is the discipline side. I think of both my oldest sons, uh, one of whom's in the other room right now Mm -hmm. are both restless leg guys. Yeah. And man, at the dinner table, it just feels like there's a, earthquake going on at all times oh yeah 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 and it always makes me feel tense i i don't even know why i'm feeling tense and i'm like oh i've got like two legs of large <laughs> young yeah, men yeah. going bah, 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 bah. and i realize i have restless soul syndrome mm. that's going on on the inside mm. a lot of times yeah yeah i yeah. don't notice it until i can stop and be be present enough to even be aware of myself yeah so I think you're talking about this work of understanding past mm. what's happening now. And then there's just the rechecking in with ourself yeah. because that's kind of the bigger story we're working on. Mm-hmm. And then there's just the moment by moment stuff. Yeah. We're like, oh, I need to attend to this. Well, all of this has a lot to do with knowing ourselves, um, what's going on, why is it going on, and then add to that a spouse. And oh my gosh, how does anyone survive (laughs) and uh you know while i was gone in florida there was nonetheless still here on schedule a taping of the pirate monk podcast and you conducted an interview with a, a remarkable couple who's done a lot of thinking and a lot of work about answering the questions the dynamics that arise uh in marital relationships between people with different personality types. And it was a great time getting to know them. So uh, maybe we'll take a quick break and jump right into the, uh, the McCord conversation. 
We'll be right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Podcast. Here we are. Beth, Jeff, record. Awesome. This has taken a few weeks to work this out. And I've, I've <laughs> been excited right. about this. Yeah. yeah, it's been a busy season for us. It's a big year for us, actually. But it's true. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we're thankful to be here. So, you two, Enneagram, uh, marriage, couples, coaching. This is this is your passion. Yeah. Is getting people to understand each other better through the lens of the Enneagram while still understanding that the transformative power is not the Enneagram, but is the gospel. Exactly. Yeah. And our mission actually at your Enneagram coach is for people to see themselves with astonishing clarity so they can break free from self-condemnation, fear, and shame by knowing and experiencing the unconditional love, forgiveness, and freedom in Christ. So the word Enneagram isn't even in, in our mission statement, not because we don't think it's important. Obviously we've written books on it. Um, <laughs> but because the gospel is the transformative power of Christ. And so we focus in specifically on that. And then you can use the Enneagram to bring a lot of clarity. Okay, so we have to talk about uh, why this is important because yeah. some of the worst ambassadors for what you're talking about are passionate Enneagram people. <laughs> That's true. Uh, now, passionate Enneagram people, we love you. We in this room love you. Yes. But we want to tell you, uh, everybody else stop listening for a second. Passionate Enneagram people, you sometimes drive people crazy mm -hmm. who are not asking about the Enneagram. Yes. Sure. We need to find that middle ground, friends. Right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and a lot of times what we'll say, too, because a lot of people will say, um, be very disappointed in how people use the Enneagram, that you don't want to use it as a sword or a shield. You don't want to be hurting people with it or sarcasm, belittling, being blunt, like, oh, you're being such a whatever yeah. number. You're just you're just a one. You're just a, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, or making fun, right? Like. That's not helpful. Um, and you don't want to do it to yourself either, putting yourself down for what number you are. Um, but you also don't want to use it as a shield. You don't right. want it to defend, blame shift. We want to use the Enneagram to see 
all of our attributes when we're healthy all the way to unhealthy because the redemptive work of Christ has already been accomplished. We can see it all clearly. And when there's weaknesses or sins or things that we need to own, we can do that freely now and go, yep, that that's me. Lord, will you take that? Will you forgive me? Will you bring me into alignment with Christ? And so to use the Enneagram correctly does not mean that you talk about it 24, seven, 365, Right. And it, it's also not simply being self-focused. That's yeah. certainly something I hear a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is just a way to focus on yourself. Yes. No, but this self is the vehicle God gave me by which to experience him through the gospel. Right. So I need to engage self. And yes. I, I believe the book of Psalms is pretty much God's permission to, I don't know, engage self <laughs> yeah. and emotions. Sure. Right. I think it's sure. the whole book. Yeah. Well, yeah. but even in David's confession in the Psalms is that it not only is he learning about himself and restoring relationship with God, but then he closes out, well, teach me so that I may teach others. There's this, there's a transformative sense that as God is doing his work in me, that's going to have a relational expression towards whether it be my wife, my children, my friends, my coworkers. And so that's when you know that you're doing good theology, good Bible well, is when you're loving well. Yeah. And and so I guess I'm hoping that people that have felt a little hung up on that mm-hmm. can know, okay, there there is permission to be found. Yeah. You know, just in these yeah. few words, I don't know if you're going to find permission. But find it because mm-hmm. this is the vehicle of worship God put us in. Yeah. And, and it's as we move towards the gospel. Yep. And when we know ourselves, especially, I don't want to say especially, okay, I want to know from you guys because yeah. you, you started uh, – <laughs> No, I almost got in trouble. Filtered. Good for me. <laughs> Yay. Found back. Uh, early Enneagram stuff was pretty dark. Yeah. It was very, yes. uh, here's the messed up version of you. Yes. Focused. Uh, but because it's so accurate to see that, it mm-hmm. also shows, wait, no, you're also, you've been created in these beautiful ways. Yes. Yeah. So how have you, as, as you're, gospel focus that yep. our goal is to know god more through the personal work of jesus yep uh that you find importance in both of those the dark parts are important because that's subverting the gospel right and, yes and this is the beauty of how you've been created tell me some more about that well we just want people to realize that the enneagram is a helpful tool like think of it as being your internal gps it is going to reveal your current location which is your main enneagram type and then there's the healthiest destination for your main Enneagram type, which is being more like Christ in the way he designed you. But like we all kind of veer off course and head off the cliff almost, we tend to fall into common pitfalls all the time, which is when our heart wanders away from the truth that we are his. And so the other way we want to use the Enneagram, not just as a GPS, but also as a rumble strip on the highway where when you're distracted, you're about ready to veer off course, whatever the reason, and you're going to do that same thing you always do, Mm -hmm. it will alert you. Like, hey, if you keep acting this way, thinking this way, or behaving this way, you're going to land at that same common pitfall. That was a really big aha moment for me because as a pastor's wife, I really felt at times, was there any sanctification happening in my life? Like we kept having the same arguments. I kept doing the same things um, that I knew weren't as honoring to God, but I was, you know, striving so hard to be like Christ. So why was I keep, why did I keep doing that same thing over and over those same things? And that when I read the Enneagram and I saw those lower parts, the less healthy, the less um, uh, 
the parts that we don't really want to be doing. It was like the Holy Spirit said, hey, Beth, as a type nine, you are going to continue in these negative ways when you are apart from me, when your heart is out of alignment or misaligned with the truth of the gospel. But he kind of said it in a very sweet um, way where it was kind of like, hey, this is a heads up. Use this as a warning sign that when you veer off course, it's not to put yourself down. It's not to beat yourself up. It's not condemnation. It's for you to come back to me, to lean on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that it's already been accomplished for you. And so now when I see those things happening, I can come back to Christ and say, I'm sorry, but will you work in and through me to make me more like you? And of course, that is what he delights in doing. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Uh, I'm thinking something right now, and I'd, I'd love to hear how you can prove this statement in your <laughs> past history. Sure. Sure. I believe that almost every relational problem comes when I interpret your words or behaviors through the lens of what it would mean if I said or did that. Exactly. Yes. So early in marriage, how did you guys find, oh, I'm interpreting your behaviors by if I said that, I'd be a total asshole. Yeah. yeah. And so you must be a total asshole. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then what happened when you realized, oh, wait, you're nothing like me. How did that change? Yeah. All right, give me the stories. Yeah, I, I can remember one specific incident that was um, significant in the life of our marriage. We had probably been married around 15 years at that point, but um, we had this marital dance where – when I would start to sense that Beth as a type nine began to shut down, I would experience anxiety internally as a type six. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, oh no, I've messed this up. And matter of fact, it used to be a refrain um, when we were in seminary is I would see all of these stories or hear all these stories and talk to my friends about their lives that ministry would create this hardship on marriages. And my fear was, is that Beth and I could not figure out our relationship and we were heading into ministry and that this was going to be harmful to us. And so I brought an irrational fear. And so when Beth as, was- As a six, your fear was? my Yeah, my fear was, is that uh, I was going to do something that was going to call irreparable damage and then our, we would divorce. Yeah. So in this one instance in year 15 where the argument started in the kitchen, she started to shut down. I started to get big, passionate. Sometimes that would mean yelling. Sometimes it would be anger. And Beth decides she goes up to the bedroom. Well, as the godly man that I am and husband, I pursued her the way that Jesus Christ mm -hmm. pursues his bride. Um, actually, it was more out of anxiety trying to repair and keep this thing kind of keep it functioning. Um, and so I followed her upstairs and she was there balled up on the bed under the covers weeping. And I'm literally almost over her yelling at her. I love you. We can work this out. Like it was and totally irrational. Nine, you can imagine. Does that work? Can I go, can I go deeper into this? Yes. Bed? Oh, and it's called the bank vault. It closes. It The, the lock turns. You are not entering. Uh, so those that are out there that don't know, type nines fear, conflict, tension of any kind, any kind of discord with others. And so though in Jeff's world, kind of like you're saying, he is pursuing me to show me his loyalty, his commitment, his passion. 
as a nine, it is only landing on me as conflict tension. I'm doing something wrong. I'm being a bad wife. And that was that's really important. And this gets to your original question. I thought I was the problem. Mm. Beth thought she was the problem. So when I got big, she's thinking there's something wrong with me. And, or with, and with that, that you are saying that so when, now you're both when, interpreting each other's stuff yes. when through. she shuts down i'm thinking i'm a horrible husband and she's going to leave me one day mm-hmm. totally missing one another and in this moment I, I don't i don't know it was just a spiritual experience i don't know how to describe it except that i was about to leave the room and slam the door and the question came to mind and i for some reason had the courage to turn back to beth and ask her, are you going to leave me? Mm. And meaning, like, I, this that was the question I was asking. Now, her response was hilarious. Yeah, so I, I said, no, stupid. I'm never going to leave you. <laughs> Which, as a nine, we don't quite speak that bluntly. Uh-huh. Sure. And so it actually, though, it was good because it really kind of was a slap in his face. You know, like, wait, she never talks that way. And so <laughs> he realized the intensity that I brought showed that he was bringing something into our relationship that wasn't actually there Mm -hmm. and it woke him up Mm. yeah so this is huge when i think of uh, a spouse who is is working through addiction Mm. in themselves in their spouse there's all these problems that come with that what it means to each of them individually is not necessarily what the other person's perceiving. Absolutely. I, That's right. I, the dumbest story uh, that I'm willing to tell. I'm sure I could find a worse one. But early, my wife and I were married when we were, I was 19. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys were pretty young, we're too. We were 20. Right, yeah. 20. So my wife was 20. I was 19. And she would, uh, she's a two. She's very sensitive, mm-hmm. super nice. I'm an eight. I'm an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um Thanks, guys. When you come to retreats, just go ahead and keep reminding me of that. That's really funny. Uh, anyways, I, I remember one day, uh, every time we would be in conflict, she would start crying because mm-hmm. I would get intense. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily yell, but yeah. I would have, mm-hmm. like, intensity. Mm-hmm. Yes. She would start crying. And I would always interpret that as, you just took control of this conversation. Mm-hmm. We're done talking. You're crying. Mm-hmm. You, wow. You're controlling me. Yep. And I would get so much more angry, like, come on, we're in the middle of this. Yeah, you know what? If I had nothing to say, I'd just start crying too and shut this down. Yep. yep. It took me years before I realized I had never thought, and not kidding, never crossed my mind, she might be crying because she's sad <laughs> or hurt. hurt. <laughs> yeah. Nope, she's just trying to control me right now. Yeah, or manipulate. Manipulate me. Mm -hmm. Years of that. And that was this whole like, wow. Yeah. And so the great thing about all of this is that once you understand how to use the Enneagram from a gospel-centered perspective, is that you can change how you clarify your own position, Mm -hmm. but ask clarifying questions of the other person to make sure you're not committing a suicide, which is assuming incorrectly people's thoughts, feelings, and motives. And so we talk about, let's say that again. This is, this is chapter one in the book. One of the book is have you ever committed a suicide, which of course everyone should raise their hand because we think other people see, interpret and react to the world or circumstances in the same way we do. And when they don't, we get upset, hurt, 
uh, angry, you name it. And, and we try to fix it or change it in other people. But if we recognize, no, there are nine valid ways of seeing the world in circumstances and reacting to them. That doesn't mean they're always valid as unhealthy, but mm -hmm. there are just differences. And so by understanding how we operate and think differently, we can come to each other in that same light. So for instance, when Jeff and I have this same kind of dance and we will always, cause I'm still going to be a nine, he's still mm -hmm. going to be a six. He will be activated or triggered that there's abandonment when I shut down. I'm a nine. We shut down when there's intensity or we withdraw because it feels like I'm going to explode. Something horrible is going to happen. There's going to be discord. I know that that's part of how I am, but I can't use it as an excuse or shield or blame shift, but I can own it and clarify to him that, hey, I really need some space to process and think, or I probably will physically just shut down, even if I'm not trying to shut down. But I'll ask him, hey, will you give me 10, 15, 20 minutes to go away to think and process? It's because I'm for you. I'm for us. I just need to process. That communicates to him loyalty, commitment, and that I'm in this together. That helps him to not pursue me with intensity, and he gives me that space. And so then we can come back together. Now, don't everyone else think out there that, oh, they've got this all figured out. They're perfect. We mm -hmm. have it today. Like, he got yeah. intense. He was scared about something not to do with me, but I had then posted something for our team that he needed to be taken down, and he intensely said it. Well, I felt like I was being the bad wife again, or I did something wrong, and I started to shut down. But now we can, he can clearly say, oh, hey, I know I was really intense. That wasn't about you. It was because of my fears of this, this, and this. Oh, okay. You know, and so we can have these conversations now because we understand how we operate differently and then clarify. Yeah, okay. So, so the huge part for those that are thinking like, okay, it's just, I already did Myers-Briggs. Right. So I, mm. I've got personality yeah. profiles down. Yeah. This isn't about personality profiles. This is about a shared vocabulary. Yeah. Yes. That you you both know words for your own feelings yeah. and write questions about what may be happening with the other yeah. person. Which, and before we move to that, yeah. Because I want to talk about clarifying questions, but you said something that I think is so important. Uh, couples out there, being able to step away from conflict is really important. Yes. But what was just articulated was. If you need to take some time, if you can't handle a situation or it feels too intense, it feels unsafe, mm -hmm. always add a time frame mm -hmm. so that the other person can accept it. If yeah. you just say, I can't do this right now, that's not the same thing mm -hmm. as asking for time. Yep. Or, and Jeff would even, he would tell me this because as a nine, I'm like, okay, once I go away and internally I calm down. The nine feels like, oh, we're good now. Exactly. And I wouldn't really come back to yes. the situation and talk about it. <laughs> and and yes. so that's something I have to own. And I have to then move towards him and say, hey, we do need to finish talking about that. Yeah. I feel good now, but I know the situation isn't resolved. So for those of you that have sort of dabbled in this but struggled, mm. it's mm. probably because you left this component out. Mm. I don't care if my wife says, okay, we can talk about this tomorrow. Yeah. I don't need just an hour i don't care mm -hmm. give me a time and yeah. then we better come back to it because yeah. if that yes. promise is broken it's right up there with yeah we'll have sex later and then we don't <laughs> and that hurts too yeah so yeah. no promises about we're stepping away and yeah. reconversing yes but if you give a time mm -hmm. the other person really can take a breath yeah. and go oh okay 
Mm -hmm. I can give you that space. Yeah. Yes. Way easier. So be specific. But back to your other point, though. Yeah. Uh, When you are, okay, I have vocabulary for myself. Here's what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. If I think I know what you're feeling, Mm -hmm. because you're a nine. Yep. That only leads me to good clarifying questions, not better assumptions. Exactly. And, and, (laughs) you know, I think one of the important things is that it, it is a profoundly helpful tool because it gives couple a vocabulary to explain what they're thinking, feeling, and doing. Yep. At the same time, it can be used as a harmful instrument when some, like Beth may say to me, like, why are you being such a six right now? Or why are you so... That's not helpful. You're just or, being anxious or you're just being this or you're just... Yeah, and, or what will happen sometimes uh, because, you know, we've got two adult children and so you know we're well versed in enneagram it's Mm -hmm. just a part of our vocabulary as a family where they may say dad are you feeling abandoned right now (laughs) and so but and it's crucial to realize to not use the enneagram to presume that you know someone Mm -hmm. but you have a framework for understanding what they may feel but they may use different words to describe it right Mm -hmm. And so uh, many sixes might not talk about abandonment, but because I was adopted and experienced a lot of uh, sorrow and tragedy in my life, abandonment is the word for me. But that's not necessarily the word that we always use when we talk about sixes. Um, they definitely want safety and security in relationships, and it has a unique expression. Mm-hmm. So don't just treat your spouse as their number. Treat yeah. them as the unique individual that they are. Well, because you have your own story. That's right. I yeah. mean, even though you're a six, if we had 10 sixes in here, yeah, there are some similar components, but each individual mm-hmm. story and gifts and talents and passions and callings are different. And so you don't put people in a box. In fact, the Enneagram is really trying us to get ourselves out of this habitual pattern of thinking that restrains and withholds us back from how God has called us to actually be. So what are some of your favorite clarifying questions? Yeah. Well, um, a one is, what did you hear me say? Mm. It's a big one. Um, or how did that land on you? Mm-hmm. So it was interesting in the card today, uh, because we're now entrepreneurs leading a business that we never dreamed that this would have ever happened. We were just a pastor family and doing the local church thing. Um, We were talking about making mistakes. And I asked Beth, rather than assuming that I understood what it meant to her when she made a mistake, I asked her, when you make a mistake, what is that? What are the consequences in your mind? And she said, it's relationships. It's I'm disappointing people. And I told her, when I make mistakes, I think I'm going to ruin the whole business. Like financially, it's going to fall apart and I'm going to have to let people go. We're both scared to death of mistakes, but it, it's more tied to our Enneagram types mm-hmm. and the core motivations. And so uh, what did you hear me say? How did that land on you? Uh, tell me more about what you meant when you said this which means you don't take things personally, yeah. but um, you return with curiosity and you give your spouse room to kind of work out their feelings, their well, fears, we also, their we talk anxiety. About, you know, like I've got a Coke can in my hand on the table. And if you put it, you know, out here on the table in between Jeff and I, and we talk about the problem as if it's out here versus at each other, right. it helps us to clarify the issue or what's going on out there together versus at each other. Mm -hmm. And that is, I mean, it's hard 
but it's also a real helpful component because then we can talk a little bit more freely and I'm not taking things so personally. He's not taking things so personally. But well, it that's takes what time happened this morning that. is that so you had promised to post something that I didn't recognize you were going to post. I, I felt unsafe like it was I was brainstorming in that document. Mm-hmm. I responded out of the anxiety and then so I yell at you, hey, take that down, take it down, take it down. You interpret it as it was negative to you. Mm-hmm. But then later on, even though I came back and said, this was not a mistake you made, this was an insecurity I felt, Mm -hmm. I still needed to apologize to Beth for understanding that my bigness and intensity impacted her, even though it wasn't against her. But recognizing I'm going to own that in my anxiety, I yelled at you Mm -hmm. and it hurt you. Yeah. Well, and and in your mind, you weren't yelling. When it was happening, you weren't yelling at me. That's right. That's right. But it sure felt like it to me. Well, that's it's an important word, uh, maybe just to the three of us, because it's come up so much in my life Mm -hmm. where my wife has said, "Stop yelling at me." And I will say, my my voice is not raised. I am. There's nothing about this that's yelling. Mm -hmm. And we didn't resolve that for well over a decade. Yeah. probably longer until mm-hmm. I realized, oh, you're talking about intensity, mm-hmm. not volume. That hits you like yelling. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So even- you know, It's interesting. There's a book called, it's an odd title, but it's a fairly well-known book called um, Nonviolent Communication. Uh, it sold over a million copies. And there's four principles to this idea. And it's uh, similar in your situation. If you experience your spouse- and you experience that as anger, you simply say, when this happens and I hear you speak that way, I experience fear. And what I need is for there to be a calmer way for us to approach this conversation. So in none of that, was it accusatory? Mm -hmm. But it does give your spouse to be able to express um, how they're experiencing your presence. Yeah. Without saying, without accusing you or. Um, right. Well, and, and that's where the hang up is, right? When the word is yelling, that yes. has a meaning to me where I'm like, I'm, but I'm not. Well, and, and that's actually a good point <laughs> is that we've had to change certain words that we use. Yes. Um, one, because of we use that, that one word, whatever it is. So for you guys yelling mm-hmm. and it always meant something and it, <clears throat> it brings up and it activates your heart. Because you assumed or thought a certain way that right. she meant, now maybe now that you guys know it's more intensity. Right now she can use the word intensity versus yelling, which will land on you a little bit better to hear and to then adjust more quickly. Right, because yelling to me felt like, well, you say I'm like being abusive to you. I'm not right. being yes. abusive. I'm not being aggressive at you. Yeah. Like don't. Now I'm very. I'm in a defensive posture. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're both withdrawing, yes. <laughs> like, but it feels like I'm being attacked, but she's still moving away. It's mm-hmm. weird. I don't yeah, know yeah, what yeah. kind of mortar shells those <laughs> are. But, uh, but yeah, the word intense, Yeah, I can cop to that all day long mm-hmm. because that just means, yeah, I'm feeling passionate about this. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, don't show as much passion. I'll yeah. try. Yeah. I, don't, I don't feel like a dick. Yeah. Yelling, I feel mm-hmm. like you're saying I'm abusive. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, you know, so the clarifying questions is important, but clarifying statements are just as important. And that's what what I was saying. When I feel overwhelmed as a nine, I will clarify to him. I know that 
we're okay. I want you to know that we're okay. I need some space and time to think and process because I'm not a fast processor. And so he can just, you know, go for it like on the spot and I'm like overwhelmed and rattled. And so clarifying my position, we are okay. I need some time alone because I am, I am frustrated. I am hurt. I'm whatever. Um, but letting him know the relationship is still intact is, is really important for us. Now, again, two other types might have their own needs that are different than the type six and a nine relationship. And actually we've created 45 courses to actually describe your specific uh, relationship needs, but that's really important to have those two areas, asking clarifying questions and giving clarifying statements. When you were talking about the Coke can, it made me think of another thing that is so common uh, with spouses Many times there's one that has already worked stuff out in their head. And so now that we're talking, we're, uh, the language we use is you're in the courtroom, you're now arguing the case. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where the other spouse still thinks you're in disclosure, where mm-hmm. we're not sure we might settle. Mm-hmm. We're not actually in the courtroom yet. Sure. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize the other person is fighting in the courtroom and they're saying, well, what? okay. A little more. What's this mean? What's that mean? Mm. And to recognize when we are in conflict and that the other person might not be in conflict yet yeah. mm. to create space for, oh, oh, wait, are we still putting stuff out? Because if we settle, that'll be cheaper. We might yeah. not have to go to battle over this. Yep. Um, that's not as hard as it sounds. I mean, it takes practice. Yeah. But man, does that save a lot of energy, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. when we realize the other person hasn't been fighting yep. and they're yeah. usually confused. Often words are used like you're always trying to win or lose mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'm not. Usually that means one spouse is going into battle mode. The other still getting information. Well, and I think, you know, as we talk about suicide and different lenses, it's also different perspectives, right? You can Mm -hmm. think of it that way. So you and I are, the three of us are sitting at a table and I'm at the head of the table and you guys two are across from each other. But if you and I were to try to tell Jeff what's behind him, because you and I can see it and we, you know, definitively are going to argue with him. And he then tries to argue back, but he's not even looking at it. Like he has a totally different perspective. And so to recognize you're coming to arguments, situations, conversations, whatever it is from different viewpoints. And you have to take the time to pause, to listen, to be patient and just to make sure, okay, well, this is how I saw it, or this is how I heard it. This is how it landed on me. Tell me from your side so that I understand more clearly where you're coming from. Because we'll get upset, like like you said. Right. Well, I wouldn't have said that, you know. Well, yeah, but that's your personality style. That's the way you see things. So it's really helpful when you go through our books or the Enneagram as a whole and just recognize, wow, we have core motivations that are so radically different from one another um, that we can use that vocabulary to really strengthen our relationship. And for those of you that are really passionate saying, well, but I know what the picture is. We're looking at the picture. So this is stupid Yeah. that we would have to take extra time for Jeff yes. to work this out. We're looking at the picture. <laughs> yeah. How can you not see it? It's just right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I get that. Mm-hmm. But how's that worked for you? Mm-hmm. Sure. Like what's the end result of those conversations? Huge blowups over a picture that didn't mm-hmm. matter. Yep. Versus, okay, 
if we lay all this information out, if what does this mean to you? What's it mean to me? If in the end there's still worth something fighting over, yep. then knock yourself out. Fight over it. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm, you have full permission. So yeah. all you're doing is saying, I'm giving a little extra time before yes. I kick your ass. Right. <laughs> so if you still need to believe you get to kick someone's ass, you do it. Just give a little more space. So of course, now the, all the nine in me is like, no, well, let's have peace <laughs> and harmony. It's <laughs> a little strong there. <laughs> let's, let's rein it back. No, but uh, I actually I have a strong eight wing. So yeah. oh, there you go. So we're fine. Uh, yes. Every week I'm told that I have said it too strongly. I'm, I get it. So now let's talk about people who are struggling with addiction and spouses uh, dealing with someone who's struggling with addiction. How does, the, how does this factor in? Mm-hmm. Why does it matter? And that's such a great question. And um, one of the things that we've come to understand, um, having used the Enneagram over for over the past decade, um, is that our our Enneagram style, our the way of being for each type, is a strategy. It's a way to cope with life, and that brings with it liabilities and strengths. And the strengths are is that we've all experienced some element of living in a broken world. And so my six strengths make me a great executive pastor and executive director because I needed to take care of myself and to account for all the ways that things could go wrong. But that also as a child left me with a place of an anxious heart trying to find security and safety. And I am inclined to certain behaviors, attachments, um, coping mechanisms in order to calm that desire. So the Enneagram helps to bring uniqueness and particularity to why a person would gravitate to any harmful coping behavior. In addition is that it also gives us language and a lens to understand how we experience the betrayal relationally when we are in a relationship with another person who is coping with the brokenness of their world. And so if as Beth as a nine is going to experience my sinful patterns, she's going to experience it as a nine. And so her... Uh, interpret and perceive it as Interpret it that way. That's right. And so when there Regardless have been... Regardless of your behaviors being sexy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The interpretation still not. that's right yes that's i mean that's a really like let us all just ponder that for a second yeah because it seems to miss or if i or if you deeper, and i were like good friends uh, and you did something as an eight i'm still going to interpret it through the lens of a nine right that's important so how many conversations when we're dealing with spouses uh does uh, one of them say, no, it wasn't about you. The other one's like, we're married. Right. Of course it's about me. That's mm-hmm. right. And they're they're both saying something that's true from their perspective. Yes. And both missing what's happening internally. Yeah. It, um, part of the, the dynamic in betrayal, at least, in making it about us is that it helps us to feel more in control. And uh, it actually comes to our own diminishment and our own self-harm. And so for Beth to perceive um, idolatrous behavior in my life as if she's not enough is a way for her 
to motivate her to try to be enough for me. But no matter how great of a wife she is, I'm still going to have my own idolatrous behaviors because there's something inside of me that's pushing that that has nothing to do with her. So what do you say to a person that says, um, I don't really care about your reasons that you did all of this. You just blew up my life. Mm. I'm, I'm, I don't even know if I can put the pieces back together again. And you want me to understand, Oh, you're a six. That's why you felt like you needed to do this. Well, it's not, yeah, I, I guess I would say it's not because you're a six or three or four. It's because you're a human and you're a sinner. Okay, but why Why should I care to have to understand why you did what you did that hurt me? What What's mm-hmm. What's my motivation? I mean, at this point. Well, you know, I mean, it, that, that so it, 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 I experience that as contempt. It's a way to kill longing. And what the Enneagram is inviting people to is to compassion and mercy. And when you face betrayal that just slaps you in the face, there's a part of you that says, I don't want relationship with you anymore because you harm me so much. So why should I even care? Right. But that itself is a defensive mechanism so that hopefully in the future, they'll never do it to you again. And the reality is, is that being this side of heaven, we are going to face betrayal. Even Jesus himself, I mean, think about him sitting at the Last Supper, washing the feet of these men half nude and washing their feet who were going to all betray him. Um, And because it it didn't overtake him. It was, there was sorrow, there's loss, there's grief, absolutely. Um, But the Enneagram is promising well, I shouldn't say that, and that's not true. The Enneagram is a helpful tool that gives us clarity so that we can move towards restoration. It's the gospel that God has not left us to our own devices. That is our hope. Well, I think when you read our book, Becoming Us, or the other books that I've put out, the Enneagram collection on each type, we show you that there's four core motivations to each type the core fear, what you're running away from, the core desire, which you're always trying to obtain. This will bring me life. The core weakness, which is also called the passion of the deadly sin. It's where we are weak, but God is strong. And it constantly reminds us of our need for him. And then the core longing. This is the message our heart has always longed to hear. And we've tried to get it from people, careers, you name it, you know, addictions. Um, But in that very last part about the core longing is that what we show is that Christ satisfies the core longing. That's the key to transformation. The problem is we've tried to use addiction, our spouse, all these things to get that, but that is a broken cistern, like a clay pot that's broken, and you try to keep filling it with water, whatever it is, and it's broken, so it's going to leak out. Only Christ is the spring of living water who will replenish all things and restore all things. So as a type nine, my core longing is to know that my presence matters. And I'm constantly looking at Jeff to fill that need. But poor Jeff, he's just a human. He cannot fulfill that. Even if he tries his darnest and he really has tried hard, I'll still want more and more. But he's a broken sister. Now, he's a beautiful sister in the sense that God gave him as my spouse. But on this Very side of heaven. Very decorative. I think yeah. I find you <laughs> yeah. a type of sister. Awesome. But as, as a spouse, he can only offer so much. The only one that can offer 
to me that my presence matters and it actually ring true is Christ. He left his throne, lived a brutal life, died a horrible death and rose again to show me that my presence matters. And I don't know if there's a better way to ever show anyone that their presence matters. So it's my, in a sense, responsibility to surrender and depend on the truth of the gospel that my presence matters to Christ. When I surrender to that, he enables my heart to believe it, to trust it. And that's when I live in alignment with the truth of the gospel and feel and know and experience that I'm his beloved child. When my heart and mind start to wander from the truth of the gospel, where I get misaligned or out of alignment, I'm going to then cling to the things of this world to fill that void. And it won't. Well, and, and take special note you said at the end of that path of the gospel filling those spots, I will feel and actually have an experience. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of Christians feel like I've, I feel like I've gone to church and Sunday school yep. my whole life, but I haven't yet felt it. Mm -hmm. I haven't experienced it. That's where the doubt comes from. Yep. I'm, I'm not feeling what it looks like everybody else is feeling. Mm -hmm. Look at those eight ladies with their hands up. They seem to be feeling it. Yeah. That's what we we crave, and it is something that can be felt. Uh, okay, we're running out of time, but just as one more cap on that, on the why should we care, mm -hmm. uh, you've got obviously, regardless of this progression with our spouse, uh, it we have to be filled with the gospel. Yeah. But then going back to the spouse uh, that has maybe hurt us, that has maybe betrayed us, mm -hmm. There's a part of me that doesn't really want to know because if I find out, that is going to move towards compassion and mm -hmm. mercy. Mm -hmm. But there's also a healing that comes for me to understand, okay, this was about me because we're married. We're in this together. Mm -hmm. But I also see that this was about something in you that was completely other than me. So taking this compassionate journey is for you. This isn't this isn't about letting them off the hook. This is about you. Yep. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. yeah, there's a quote that we came across recently. Brene Brown had it in one of her books. And her statement was or the state the quote was, the cave that you fear holds the treasure that you seek. I if there was any other way. Uh, I would prefer it, but I often experience Christ's presence in my life when I am at my deepest need in suffering. And, you know, even the formula, do not fear for I'm with you. It's almost as if fear becomes the context for us to experience mm -hmm. God's presence in a way that we wouldn't experience it before. That's funny because that can often be taken as, so you shouldn't fear as he's with you, <laughs> right. versus the way you just said it. That was beautiful. Sure. I like so I, um, yeah, I, I know my father's heart grieves over sin and its impact upon our marriages. And at the same time, it is our father's intent. He is not anxious about it. He is not disturbed. He's not despondent but he is present. 
and desires restoration. Now, restoration can look, I mean, there's reconciliation. So for the past decade, I've been a professional mediator. And so I've done a lot of marriage mediations in situations like these. And there is the reconciliation part, the forgiveness part, and the restoration part, the how do you rebuild trust? And those are two separate things. Saying, I forgive you, does not cut them loose to do whatever in the future. And so, but in the process of rebuilding trust, it will be an invitation to both spouses, not just to the one who had failure in life. Well, I think, you know, for each of us, it's, it's really difficult because one person's sin could look worse than the other or could impact lives more than another. Mm-hmm. But all sin is harmful and all sin is, needs Christ's blood the same way. And so I think as the spouse who's hurting, it's really hard to want to move towards, to understand, to hear, to give mercy or grace or understanding empathy because you're saying of that fear. At the same time, it's the same, the forgiveness that they need is the same forgiveness each of us needs. And I think whether they're doing, because we can't change our spouse. Our spouse who has an addiction to anything, we can't change them, no matter how we love them, no matter how much Enneagram you know, how, no much, how much gospel, that's the work they have to do. But we, I truly believe that the spouse will be blessed by one, knowing their own frailties and sins and how much Christ has overcome all of that on their behalf. When each of us knows the depths of what Christ has done on our behalf, it is only then that we can move towards our spouse and to love them well. Does not mean that we give them a pass, that we let them do whatever. If anything, it could be the opposite. Tough love, um, not being codependent, lots of that Jeff and I have you know, worked on in different ways. But it's our own personal growth with Christ that will transform our personal life, whether it does bleed into the marriage, that's for God to reconcile. But I think each spouse will find transformation when they go to him. The book is Becoming Us. Where do people get this? Amazon? Yeah. Go to your all, website. Yeah. What? And you can go. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. everywhere. So uh, all mainly all of the online stores for sure. Yeah. How that's how right. can people hear more from you guys yeah. or get a hold of you? Where do they go? Yeah. So becomingus.com is our platform for the book. We have live events that we're doing across the nation um, where we really kind of get into your kitchen and show you how to. Uh, Enneagram types operate together, kind of like the story we told. Yeah, and don't forget on becomingus.com, you can get a free download Mm. or assessment where we have given, it's a six-page download for each of the 45 different couple types of the Enneagram. And we go through what their healthy and unhealthy dynamics are as it relates to spirituality, family of origin, communication, conflict, and becoming their best selves together. Yeah, so you can kind of see your two types side by side. But if you want to go further, we have a Becoming Us online course where I know you and your wife are an eight and a two. We literally talk about your two types together when you're aligned and then when you're misaligned in those categories as well. So we'll specifically show you what's going on under the hood so that you guys can have the clarity to move forward in health. So for all of you unaligned people, that's for you. Uh, that is awesome. Well, thank you yeah. for spending the, the time, the extra time. This is yeah, good. It's, this is fun. It, it has been great. I love talking about this stuff. So I've yeah. loved having you guys here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, all right. Thank you. And we will be right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hello. 
There's a sweet old man at my church who says uh, often that you always want to stay a student and never the master. And whenever he says that, I think, um, what does he know? <laughs> so here's a new song. I think I figured out why I feel so alone. I've grown too much in self-awareness. I'm sure that I'm right. But the friends that I know aren't involved enough to understand it. I read all my blind spots a long time ago. After reading some books that put me in the know So I don't need therapy, there's nothing to fix Cause I know what my Enneagram number is I'm a man without shadow, a picture of health, humbly got rid of his ego. I taught myself yoga, so I'm all covered there. Every once in a while, I do center in prayer. But the greatest of all is the comfort I get Cause I know calling as one who is woke is leading the lost through the dark night and I know the way to wisdom and hope I'll text you a link to the website multiple choices 
that's all you must do then you'll find yourself walking the road back to you and they say it's a journey but i found the end because i And we are back on the Pirate Monk podcast. Well, that was fun. I'll tell you what. I loved that interview. And I was glad that, that uh, in a way, I was glad I wasn't here because I would have been, you know, I'm Enneagram ignorant. Uh, I would have been in the weeds in the first five minutes. I wouldn't have known what what question to ask anyway or what comments to make or what button to push. But you, you stayed with them the whole time. Yeah, I I mean I really hope I'm a simple person. And so yeah. <laughs> Okay. If things can't be boiled down simply, oh. it doesn't hold much interest for me. Yeah, okay. And uh, like we mentioned, I love Enneagram people, but it can get more and more complicated where pretty soon I'm connected to every number in this way and possibly in the month of April, I'll be a two. And, you know, it just, that's when I start just wanting to say, just what does it mean to me? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I loved, uh, you know, that conversation. It's just, look, do I know what's going on in my own heart? Do mm-hmm. I know why I'm angry, why I'm anxious right now? And then can I look at you and recognize what you need? It's that simple. Yeah. And uh, as as far as people want to take that, some people love the complicated version. Go get it. Have a ball. Uh, but I just want to know why my wife has that hurt look on her face when yeah. I think I understand what's going on and I clearly don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, this uh, Enneagram, I must admit, it's still as mysterious to me as fantasy football. I wouldn't be able to do either one. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I see that there is validity and certainly there is a, 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 a people are getting a lot of help out of the Enneagram. They really are. I did uh, have uh, our friend from Alaska send me <laughs> Andy Gullihorn uh, has a song about the Enneagram. Maybe I will have to, you know what? I'm going to put that on this episode. Okay. Fact, I don't even want to do it as the closing at this point. Uh, for those of you that heard it about before the interview, that was Andy Gullihorn's song about knowing his number, so everything in life will be okay now. Uh, <laughs> <there>. <laughs> I'll, I'll put the link in, in okay. the notes. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to put that before the interview. Just so you know, we don't take anything but the gospel too seriously. And I think we're out of time. I think we are, too. But it's been a good time, and I'll see you again next week. Hope to hear. Uh, hope to hear. Hope to hear. What? I, what? I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> I'll see you again next week. I hope our <laughs> listeners will join us again next week. And by the way, if you enjoy this podcast, send us a thousand dollars. No, it felt like no, it was no. going there. Well, we'd know. love to get a note. You know what would also help? I've never even asked for this. I've never asked you to uh, give us a rating on 
whatever instrument you use to listen to podcasts. Wow. There is such a thing? Yes, absolutely. What is, what is that? Give us, uh, give us a star. A five, give us five stars. Give us a comment. Say, uh-huh. yeah. If we get those stars, what, what happens then? It helps to improve our visibility so that more people can find the podcast. Does that mean I have to start wearing pants if we're more visible? <laughs> I don't know if I want stars if that's uh, what has to happen. Yeah. All right. Well, And tell your friends about us. Wow. Tell your enemies about us. Ooh, even better. That's right. Yeah, it's good times. There's so many options. I didn't know we're out there. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Nate. Uh, I'm star number, number. what's a good amount? Six, seven? Okay, good. You're a seven-star Aaron. All right. And we're your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Arg. So